Hello, my name is Edward Collins and you are listening to Kingdom, Empire and Plus Ultra, conversations on the history of Portugal and Spain, 1415 to 1898. This History Hope series was made possible by University College Dublin Seed Funding Award and support from UCD School of History. Today we're speaking with Dr. Ellen Dooley on the Spanish Inquisition and the religious image in Spain and America, 1478 to 1700. Dr. Dooley received her PhD in art history from the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, where she specialised in 17th and early 18th century Spanish painting and print. Her dissertation was focused on the relationships among the city of Seville's elite patrons and its community of artists. Her broader research interests include the circulation of artist prints in Spain and the Americas, the transatlantic art trade, the history of the Catholic Church's patron of art, and the impact of the pestilence on artistic production in Spain. She currently works as the Assistant Curator of Latin American Art at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Dr. Dooley, welcome to the show. Hi, Edward. Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. So we'll get straight into it then. Um, We're talking about the Spanish Inquisition and the religious image then in Spain and America from 1478 up to 1700. But um, can we begin with some background on the Spanish Inquisition? Um, What were its origins in Spain? Uh, Why was it founded? The Spanish Inquisition was one manifestation of the larger institution of the Christian Inquisition, which was founded in the 12th century to serve as a judicial system to combat heresy within the Catholic Church. The Spanish Inquisition, which is also known as the Holy Office, was founded in 1478 by the Catholic monarchs, which is a title used for Queen Isabella I of Castile and King Ferdinand II of Aragon, and their marriage had recently united Spain. And they established the Inquisition in order to maintain Catholic orthodoxy, especially among communities of converts, the Converso and Morisco populations in Spain, which were Jewish converts to Christianity and Muslim converts to Christianity. These communities were particularly large in the south of Spain, which is why they established a seat of the Inquisition in Seville. So the Spanish Inquisition itself was actually an offshoot of an earlier Inquisition, the Christian Inquisition. Okay. And it was founded in 1478 in Seville. So um, the seat of the Inquisition then uh, was in Seville. Did it maintain its close association with the city? Yes, it definitely had a strong presence in the city and became quite infamous there. But it was so closely associated to that city because of its demographic makeup. A lot of people don't know, but Spain, but the city of Seville was under Muslim control until the 13th century when King Fernando III reconquered the city for the Catholic crown. There were large communities of Jews, Muslims, and Christians that had always lived in the city and coexisted with a certain degree of harmony. It really wasn't until the establishment of the Inquisition in the city that this coexistence came to an end. So the seat of the Inquisition really moved into the city in 1480, and this was at a time of great unrest. The Catholic monarchs were very famous for forced conversions under the threat of expulsion. And as some listeners might know, the Jewish populations who refused to convert were expelled from Spain in 1492. 
And those converts that remained in the city were really the main targets of the Holy Inquisition. And they went to pretty drastic measures to make sure that these converts were true converts, even burning some suspicious individuals at the stake. Of course, yeah. That that's yeah, their actions are are quite famous even today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So in, in the 16th century, then, the, the Inquisition assumed the responsibility of censorship as part of the Counter-Reformation, didn't it? Um, it took on more responsibilities in addition to, uh, I suppose, torturing and expelling <laughs> Chris, uh, Moriscos yes. and Conversos. Um, it also took upon the responsibility of, of censorship, um, which was, I suppose, later in the 16th century, part of the Counter-Reformation. Could you, could you explain this in, in, in more detail for our listeners? So... Just as you said, the greater context for the Spanish Inquisition really is the Counter-Reformation, also known as the Catholic Reformation. And this was a movement in direct response to the Protestant Reformation, which was a movement really started by Martin Luther in the 16th century with his introduction of Protestantism. And in response to the threat of Protestantism, the Catholic Church really needed to rethink its history, rethink its current situation, and rethink the future of the Catholic Church. And the Council of Trent, which was a series of convenings between 1543 and 1563, were integral to this kind of revamping of the Catholic Church. Yeah. And... The Council of Trent really had two main goals. Its first goal was to condemn Protestantism. The second goal was to clarify Catholic doctrine and to really grapple with some of the criticisms that the Protestant movement had cast against the Catholic Church. And while we definitely don't have enough time to go into all the issues discussed at the Council of Trent, one issue that was hotly debated and discussed was the status of the religious image. And this is because Protestants had deemed religious images dangerous. They thought that the religious image could lead to idolatry, and they also thought that religious images were distractions within holy spaces. Um, the Catholic Church, on the other hand, heavily relied on religious images, especially for the education of the faithful. Images, because they are so accessible even to the illiterate, were used to teach doctrine and to teach biblical stories. And the Council of Trent agreed that the survival of the Catholic Church really rested on the education of its followers and they decided to maintain the religious image as a strong educational tool for the use among priests and various clerics. And this is really where the Inquisition came into play, because the Inquisition had to make sure that these religious images were, quote-unquote, correct. And the determination of whether or not an image was correct was largely based on the study of the Bible and of ancient texts and ancient images. And the Inquisition played a strong role in determining what would be a correct image and making sure that artists were producing only correct images. Right. So, so, so they focused mainly on the religious image as a kind of a, a guideline from the Council of Trent. Is that right? Yes. 
Okay. So the guidelines for religious imagery that were proposed by the council, um, were they in some way an acknowledgement then that previous suppression of religious images by Protestants was not altogether wrong? I definitely think so. A lot of Protestants were inspired by the likes of John Calvin, the French theologian, who really, really condemned religious images and preached their da- the danger that they posed to the faithful. Right. And I think going to such great lengths to ensure that these images were correct images and not misguiding the followers of the church is an acknowledgement of their power and their potential to be quite dangerous. Well, of course, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, the Inquisition then, I mean, it had its own censors, didn't it? Uh, one of whom was the artist uh, Francisco Pacheco, the Spanish artist. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Pacheco? So Francisco Pacheco was born in 1564. And he was orphaned at a young age, and he came under the care of his uncle, who was a canon at Seville's Cathedral, who was also named Francisco Pacheco. And his uncle was not only an official within the cathedral, but he also was very, very involved with the intellectual communities in Seville. And having come under the care of his uncle, Francisco Pacheco was introduced to the city's literati. And he had access to some of the most powerful members of Sevillan society at the time. And he trained as an artist at a young age and was quite successful in his artistic practice. And I really think it was these social connections that he had through his relationship with his uncle and his talent as an artist that led to his appointment as inspector for the Inquisition in 1618. Right. And Francisco Pacheco, while he was an accomplished artist, he really isn't that well known for being an artist because oftentimes his career is overshadowed by that of his son-in-law, Diego Velasquez, who is also his pupil. Oh, okay. So he was he was fairly talented and relatively successful himself, but you say that, okay. In his own time, he definitely was. But today, he's more or less known for his work as an art theorist yeah. and for his role as the teacher of Diego Velasquez, the celebrated painter of Las Meninas. Of course, yeah. And the court painter for Philip IV. Yeah, not easy living in the shadow of his son-in-law then. <laughs> yes, and exactly. <laughs> you mentioned his um, that he, his career is probably overshadowed a little bit by, his painting career is overshadowed by his son-in-law, but also due to his role as a censor for the Inquisition. And you mentioned his treatise, the um, Arte della Pintura, or The Art of Painting, which he published. It was a work he published in 1649. Um, what was this work actually about? This work really sheds light on why Francisco Pacheco was appointed to the position of inspector for the Inquisition, which it's easy to imagine that that was a job that was hard to get. And you really had to prove that you were a strong supporter of the Inquisition regulations. (laughs) And his treatise was divided into three parts, and it grappled with the history, theory, and practice of painting, which its title might suggest, but it also includes a very detailed appendix on iconography. 
And Pacheco really held that correctness of the image was far more important than its beauty. And in his treatise and throughout his career, he really grapples with certain images and how to best represent them. And he's really seeking visual and religious truth. Okay. And just one example of that is Pacheco really wanted to know how many nails were used in the crucifixion of Christ. And the crucifixion of Christ was an often represented image within the history of religious painting. And it had typically been represented with three nails, one in each hand and one on the legs. On the legs, exactly, on the feet. feet. And Pacheco teamed up with his colleague, the poet Francisco Rioja, and the two of them got really into this idea of how many nails were used. And they studied ancient texts, they studied images, and in the end they concluded that Christ was actually crucified with four nails as opposed to three. Okay. And this quickly became popular as the correct way to represent the crucifix. And you really see the shift in Spanish painting at the time where artists start to represent the feet next to each other, each fastened to the cross with a nail as opposed to one on top of the other with one nail only. And so that is just one example. And another example is the correct representation of the Virgin. And Pacheco determined that the correct representation of the Virgin should be drawn from St. John's vision of the apocalyptic woman as recounted in Revelation 12. And this image is an image that we are all quite familiar with. The Virgin is clothed in sun. She has the moon under her feet. She has a crown of 12 stars on her head and she's standing atop a vanquished dragon. And Pacheco determined this was the correct representation, and it was really Diego Velasquez who made this image of the Virgin popular in Spain and widely throughout Europe. Oh, okay. So they have very, very specific rules then for the representation of the crucifix and the representation of the Virgin. Sounds a little bit pedantic, quite honestly. (laughs) They were very particular. Now, uh, when Pacheco was painting, did he actually adhere to his own rules? He most definitely did. He was very conservative. His son-in-law, on the other hand, sometimes pushed the boundaries a little bit. And he was far more innovative than his father-in-law and mentor. And I really think for this reason, he is the more famous artist and more or less recognized as the most famous artist of Spanish Baroque painting. Because he pushed those boundaries a little bit more than his father-in-law. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That's interesting. (laughs) Okay, so um, we've talked about the role of the Inquisition in Spain then. Um, During this time, of course, Spain was also continuing its exploration and settlement of America. And by the mid-16th century, it had managed to claim vast areas of land stretching from Mexico to Patagonia. It was creating viceroyalties such as New Spain and Peru. And now, quite aside from the impact on America and its people, which I'm sure we'll cover in a later podcast, the New World impacted greatly on Spain. Uh, The discovery of the New World impacted greatly on Spain, that is. Um, It opened new markets and trading routes, uh, presented new political challenges. It also provided new outlets for prospective Spanish immigrants looking for opportunities. And among these uh, immigrants were artisans or craftsmen. 
But it also impacted upon art and painting in Spain, didn't it? It most definitely did. The discovery of the New World really completely altered the artistic communities and art markets in Spain and across the Atlantic, and especially in Seville. Mm. And so Seville served as Spain's principal port to the Americas between 1503 and 1717. And it began to possess previously unimaginable fortunes. And it attracted huge numbers of merchants, bankers, explorers to the city who all wanted to profit from this new relationship with the Americas. And that's what people really think about. They think about the merchants who are trading with the Americas and coming back with shiploads of gold. But the artists were really integral to these transatlantic exchanges. Not only were artists creating paintings and prints in bulk for export to the Americas to adorn new churches, to be collected by the elite in the New Spain and the vice royalties, and also to serve as models within workshops for artist training in the Americas. But not only the art traveled across the Atlantic, but also the artists. And Spanish artists, especially those that hadn't really made it in Spain, the ones that were a little less known. Diego Velasquez most definitely did not travel mm. to the Americas. He didn't have to. <laughs> he didn't have to. He already had his patrons in Spain. But it's those artists who, even today, more or less remain nameless, are the ones who are first arriving to the Americas. And Spanish painters arrived to New Spain as early as 1538. And mm. it was there that they began to set up workshops and even guilds modeled after those that they were very familiar with in Spain. Right. Okay. And they had a whole new community of patrons in the Americas. And this was a very exciting moment, especially for those artists who were adventurous and wanted to advance their careers beyond the limits of Spain. Okay. So, um, were there differences then that emerged between artists in Spain and New Spain? I mean, was there a divergence of styles over time? Now, when I say New Spain, of course, I mean the New World. Did there emerge differences in styles between the artists in Spain and the New World over time? Definitely. So as you might imagine, the Spaniards arrived to the Americas and they're introducing European modes of representation. But the indigenous populations had their own motifs, their own practices, their own artistic expressions of religion. And these were completely foreign to one another. But styles did not become so much divergent over time as they did converge, as indigenous artists began to work under the very close supervision of Spanish artists within the context of workshops. And while the art produced in the Americas is quite distinctive from that in New Spain. Much of the art really conforms to European modes of representation that the Spaniards introduced through paintings and prints 
and various models that they brought with them. Right, I see. So then, I suppose, uh, the Spanish conquest of America also presented the church in Spain with an opportunity for mass conversion, didn't it? But it also presented challenges uh, in attempting to explain doctrine to what was, I suppose, an incredible diversity of cultures and peoples. Um, So if we can turn to the church for a moment then again, um, what challenges confronted them in terms of uh, trying to explain this kind of strange doctrine? So... The discovery of the Americas introduced a new Catholic kingdom to the Spanish Empire. And religious images played a very strong role in the conversion of the new Catholics, these new indigenous populations that were potential for new followers of the church. And much like the Council of Trent upheld that images could be used for education, Conquistadors and missionaries held that religious images could be very, very good tools for conversion and for education, especially when language is a barrier. And unlike the Jewish and Muslim populations in Spain who were familiar with Christianity and had grown up with Christianity as a presence in their community, this was a completely foreign belief system to those indigenous to the Americas. And a lot of challenges arised. For example, one of the more prevalent religious images is that of the Christ crucified. And this posed a problem considering that Spaniards were condemning human sacrifice within indigenous religions. And then they present an image of the ultimate human sacrifice. The crucifixion. The crucifixion. And so this <laughs> led to a lot of very interesting negotiations where, for example, you the Spaniards would replace the body of Christ with an obsidian stone, which was related to an indigenous god. An obsidian stone, okay. And so you see a lot of creative negotiations. Yeah, yeah. Um, in some of, especially of the early artwork produced in the Americas. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) An obsidian stone. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's quite a difference, I suppose, really. And it kind of takes away from the image of the human sacrifice then, which kind of, um, I suppose, the obsidian stone both plays into indigenous beliefs and at the same time removes the human element so that they're not thinking about sacrifice. (laughs) Exactly. And it's something that was, the use of the obsidian stone was more familiar especially within such a foreign context. Of course, yeah. So um, we'll turn back to the Inquisition then again. Um, We know about their powerful reach in Spain. Now, um, when the Spanish missionaries were attempting to to convert these indigenous peoples using all of these methods, um, at what point did the Inquisition come in? I mean, how powerful was the Inquisition in America? So the Inquisition was definitely powerful in America. And the Holy Office was established in Mexico in 1571. 15, oh, they left quite a, quite a space of time before they actually established there then. Exactly. Right. Yes, to be officially established. There were agents working on behalf of the Inquisition, but as an official institution, it wasn't established in Mexico until 1571. Oh, okay. And in terms of images, the recommendations for imagery were exactly the same in the colonies as they were in Spain. Mm. There was no variation in what was expected for artists 
in the Americas versus on the Iberian Peninsula. That said, a lot of scholars, especially recently, have argued that the Inquisition had far less control over image production and that there are far more exceptions to the accepted standards of iconography in the Americas than there were in Spain. But that said, the Inquisition was without question very powerful and definitely discouraged too many departures from the standard iconography. Okay. And in the attempts to preach the Catholic faith to indigenous Americans, is there any evidence that the Spanish were willing to adapt their methods? Um, I'm speaking particularly about religious uh, imagery, um, like, for example, how were missionaries, how, how were, were missionaries willing to deviate from European norms? And if so, how? Yeah, so there's actually a lot of examples of this. But one example that I find particularly interesting and beautiful is the practice of feather painting, which was the application of iridescent feathers two surfaces to almost make feather mosaics. And this was a very skilled artistic practice with feather work specialists working in workshops to make shields, headgear, fans, various objects and images. And the Spaniards were at first really impressed by this practice, but then they suppressed it in an effort to eradicate indigenous religions. But it was later embraced by the Spaniards and featherwork specialists were taken under their supervision to make Christian imagery using this feather mosaic practice. And these images, if any of our listeners have the opportunity to see them, are quite exquisite and very unique. And these were returned not returned, they were sent from the Americas back to Europe and collected by the elite of the elite. They were only collected by members of the court and the most illustrious collectors of art in Europe. And it really is because of this high level of skill and their uniqueness. And they were something that Spaniards had never seen before. Oh, wonderful. Um, we will have images available of these feather paintings on the History Hub website, and we'll include details of that at the end of this podcast. So I'd like to talk about the idea of cult images now, particularly one of the most famous venerated images, the Virgin of Guadalupe, which is one of the most well-known. Um, can you explain briefly what a cult image is and why the Virgin of Guadalupe is so important? Uh, what were the origins of the image? So a cult image is a human-made object that is venerated on behalf of a specific spirit, deity, being. And a cult image can be anything from a painting, it could be a sculpture, but it's some type of object that stands in to represent something greater and something that is not tangible. And in the cult image of Our Lady of Guadalupe is enshrined at the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico City. And its origin is traces back to 1531, which is the year that the Virgin appeared to Juan Diego, who was a recently 
converted indigenous man. And she appeared to him on a hilltop to the north of Mexico City. And she directed Juan Diego to go to the bishop and to instruct him to build a church for her. So Juan Diego went straight to the bishop, told him that this miraculous apparition of the Virgin had appeared to him on the hilltop and that she had instructed him to build a church for her. And the bishop immediately rejected this. So Juan Diego went right back to the hilltop. The Virgin appeared to him again and said to return to the bishop. So he went back and the same thing. The bishop said, no, I don't believe you. So he went back to the hilltop for a third time. And this time, the virgin instructed him to gather the flowers with his tunic and then to present the flowers to the bishop as proof that she had appeared to him. Hmm. He did this, returned to the bishop, unfolded his cloak, and not only did the flowers flow from his cloak, but the image of the Virgin was imprinted on his cloak. And it is that image that is worshipped today at the Basilica. In Mexico City. In Mexico City, and is the source image for the millions of representations that we have all seen of Our Lady of Guadalupe, from candles to murals to T-shirts to everything. Right. (laughs) And the source is this cult image. So why is this image of the Virgin so popular? So this image of the Virgin became so popular because not only was it the results of this great miracle, but the subject of the miracle was an indigenous man. And more importantly, the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe is that of a virgin who is of mestiza origin, which means that she is is both of Spanish and indigenous blood. Right. Um, what was the Inquisition's view of this representation of the Virgin then? Um, what was its view of cult images generally? So, as you might imagine, cult images made the Inquisition a bit nervous. They were man-made objects standing in for deities, and they were worshipped, which could very easily lead to idolatry. And Our Lady of Guadalupe was no exception. She definitely was scrutinized by not only members of the church, but also many members of the public. And inquiries and debates centered around the validity of this cult and of the apparition. And one of the famous inquiries made was that of 1666, when a group of artists inspected the cloak and determined that it was not made by human hands, that it actually was a miraculous object. And there were these inquiries made into the validity of the cult image, but there were also a lot of debates. And most of these debates were between and among the religious orders. For example, the Franciscans staunchly opposed the cult of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And a lot of these debates continued well into the 21st century. It wasn't until 2002 that John Paul II canonized Juan Diego. Oh, really? Okay. So are there other examples then of these new types of cult images across Spanish America? Is, or is the Virgin of Guadalupe the only one? No, there are definitely many examples. 
just one example is the Christ of the Earthquakes in Cusco, a miraculous sculpture that it has a very strong following in Peru. And what's interesting is that these New World cults not only were popular in the Americas, but also gained following in Europe. And while Our Lady of Guadalupe is by far the most famous, there are many instances of this. But what I find very interesting and a great delight as someone from Los Angeles is to go into churches in Seville and to see paintings of Our Lady of Guadalupe throughout churches in Spain. And these images were shipped back to Spain with the conquistadors and with the merchants in the 17th through the 19th centuries. Okay, so uh, we're running out of time, unfortunately. So uh, we, we'll, we'll wrap this up with one more question. I would like to maybe just ask you then, uh, finally, um, how would you assess the impact then of the Inquisition on the development of art in Spain and America? Um, do you view it as a wholly negative experience or is that a gross oversimplification? So I think that there is a lot about the Inquisition, which is hugely negative, And I don't think many people would argue with that. But I think it is an oversimplification to say that the impact of the Inquisition on artistic production in particular is wholly negative. And I think that's because the Inquisition forced artists to really push the boundaries of their own realities and to explore interesting and innovative ways to navigate these really overbearing forces. And I think it's really interesting to think about this idea of censorship as it relates today, as artists throughout the world continue to be suppressed and to negotiate their own political and religious contexts in artistic and creative ways. Dr. Ellen Dooley, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this History Hub podcast. To view a slideshow of images referenced in the podcast, go to historyhub.ie forward slash Ellen Dooley.